welcome to the Daily Reprieve, where we provide essays, speaker meetings, workshops, and conferences in podcast format. We are an ad-free podcast. If you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and drop a dollar or two into the virtual basket. Please consider donating monthly by clicking the Donate Monthly button. However, one-time donations are always welcome. Just click the Donate Now button. Now, without further ado, this episode of The Daily Reprieve. All right, everybody. Well, we're going to start today. We're going to do a big book walkthrough for step one. I'm just going to, it's going to be a lot of reading. It'll take about an hour and 15 minutes. Um, so we will get started. If you have a highlighter or a pen, you can kind of uh, follow through. And this is um, what I use as a step one uh, walkthrough as well as the step into action series. But before we go on to a step two, um, I'd love for my sponsees to go through the big book because I do believe that um, until I could understand that my disease was both physical and mental, I don't believe that I could have started getting sober. Um, But I'll start us off. I'd like to start us off with a set-aside prayer. Dear God, please set aside anything I think I know about myself, about my disease, about the big book, the 12 steps, the program, the fellowship, the people in the fellowship, and all spiritual terms, especially you. God, so that I may have an open mind and a new experience with all these things, please help me to see the truth. Amen. All right, so if we could, we're going to start out on page 59, and I'm going to try and go through, or page 58, how it works. And what we're going to do today is we're going to do a lot of jumping around. So it might be good to have a couple pieces of paper or something to hold your big book so we can go back and forth. And if you are not muted, if you could press star six, um, that would be really, really great. So one of the things that I believe is that unless I can put sobriety first, I cannot have it. Everything else must become secondary. And when I came into my program, I had to put my program first. So we're going to start on how it works on page 58. I'm going to read one sentence and then we will move throughout the big book. Um, What I believe, um, I believe that I had to understand before I could move on to my second step. It says, rarely have we seen a person fail who has thoroughly followed our path. And our path in the old book was our directions. Um, And that's what we're going to hopefully look at today, that these 12 steps, which are our path, which is page XI through 164, is kind of like a recipe book. And I do believe that the recipe and the directions have to be followed exactly as the big book lays them out. Um, I think any variance of that, um, not saying that God, God can use anything, but for me and my a sponsor who has taught me that I have to follow the directions exactly. So we're going to start on page XIII. And if you look, that's before your main pages. If you look at the bottom of the page, they'll start out with page XIII, and it's the forward to the first edition. And here's where the book describes what we recover from, because that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to recover from. 
says here on page XIII, we of Alcoholics Anonymous are more than 100 men and women who have recovered from a seemingly hopeless state of mind and body to show other, in our case, sexaholics, precisely how we have recovered is the main purpose of this book. Uh, my sponsor wanted me to understand the difference between precise and accuracy or precision and accuracy. So one of the things that he asked me um, was to understand was, he said, Dennis, what is the difference between precision and accuracy when we're looking at a dartboard and I throw a dart? And accuracy is where you throw three darts and they all miss the bullseye by a couple of inches down to the left, but they all land in exactly the same spot. That's accuracy. But precision is hitting the bullseye three times. And as we go through the big book, that's what we're striving for, and that's what we're going to God and asking for, is for precision, because we, we don't want to miss the mark. We want to try and follow the directions as they're laid out. And I've been taught that as I go through my big book and start working through the steps out of the big book, that I read to an instruction, and I go no further until I have followed that instruction. So it says, to show other sexaholics precisely how we have recovered is the main purpose of this book. For them, we hope these pages will prove so convincing that no further authentication will be necessary. We think this account of our experiences will help everyone to better understand the sexaholic. Um, one of the things about following the directions is if a guy makes a world-class strawberry cake, he, ha he has his ingredients exactly measured out. So much flour, so much sugar, eggs baking soda, baking powder, and when he puts those um, ingredients together as prescribed in the uh, recipe, he'll produce a world-class cake, a world-class strawberry cake. But if, he, if somebody comes along and takes the same recipe and starts altering it a little bit here or a little bit there, it's not going to have the same results, and they're not going to have the same world-class cake. And we believe that to have that same world-class strawberry cake, we have to follow the recipe as exactly as prescribed. So it goes on to read, continuing on XII, many do not comprehend that, these that the sexaholic is a very sick person. And besides, we are assured that our way of living has its advantages for all. One of the things that I like to, that I do believe is that I'm not a bad person getting good. I'm a sick man getting well. And I think it's important that I understand the difference, that in with the disease, that I'm not bad trying to get good, that I am a sick man getting well. And here it says, and besides, we're sure that our way of living, what we're going to find in our way of living is going through the steps is that um, this is not our way to quit drinking or our way to quit lusting. It's our way of living, which means to stay sober for good. And that's what I want. I want to find something that's going to keep me sober for good. So let's move to here. Let's move to page 20 in your big book. If you could follow along, we'll go to page 20. And I'm going to go to the first paragraph. It says, you may have already. Okay, in the first paragraph it says, you may already have asked yourself why it is that all of us became so very ill from our drinking. I want you to think about your acting out, your 
type of lust that you use. Think about your most lowest moments that you've had, the most that caused you the most despair. And any time we see the word drinking, I want you to associate the word drinking with that type. For me, it's a lust drink. Um, it could be some of the depths that I have gone to in my disease. So when I see the word drinking, I'm thinking about participating and entertaining and being in my disease. Doubtless you are curious to discover how and why in the face of expert opinion to the contrary, we have recovered from a hopeless condition of mind and body. If you are a sexaholic who wants to get over it, you may already be asking, what do I have to do? So we are on page 20. Somebody just came in. Um, and I am in the first paragraph. So it says here, doubtless you were curious to discover how and why in the face of expert opinion to the contrary, which says that I shouldn't be sober with this disease, that we have recovered from a hopeless condition of mind and body. And I want to look at that's mental and physical. So I want to look at the physical aspect of this disease. Um, Dr. Bob had the steps from the Oxford group. So they had a portion of the steps. But Bill W., with the help of Dr. Silkworth, Dr. Silkworth believed that in order for an alcoholic or a sexaholic to recover, he has to understand how his disease, that his body is as sick as his mind. And without that, he didn't believe that an alcoholic could recover. But when Dr. Bob and Bill, when Bill W., who had the understanding of the disease, met with Dr. Bob, who had the steps that were, started, that were designed from the Oxford group, when those two came together, that's when the solution happened. So we're going to go back. We're going to look at the body and the physical effects on the body. So we're going to go back to page, keeping a, a mark here on 20, XXVI. So if you could go back before your, uh, the number set, we're going to go to XXVI. And I'll give you a second here. XXVI is a letter that Bill W. asked Dr. Silkworth if he could write a letter on the physical aspects of the disease because he believed it was so important. They put it first in this book that, that an individual has to understand that. So with XXVI, the very first paragraph, it says, The physician who at our request gave us this letter has been kind enough to enlarge upon his views in another statement which follows. In this statement, he confirms what we who have suffered alcoholic torture or sexaholic torture must believe. I underlined must believe and put asterisk marks by it because I think this is so important. This isn't should believe or would be helpful to believe that if I'm to recover from this disease, if I'm to live free of it, this is something that I have to believe. I must believe. And here's what it is that he must believe, that the body of the sexaholic is quite as abnormal as his mind. It did not satisfy us to be told that we could not control our drinking just because we were maladjusted to life, that we were in full flight from reality, or we were outright mental defectives. These things were true to some extent, in fact, to a considerable extent with some of us. But we are sure that our bodies were sickened as well. And this is it right here. In our belief, any picture of the sexaholic which leaves out this physical factor is incomplete. My body is not like other people's bodies. Me and another guy can be walking down the road. I can see something that's a temptation. 
as with a, a guy that's not a sexaholic right next to me, we could drink in the same image, we can have the lust drink, and 10 minutes later he can be going on his way thinking about golf or doing something different. If I, as a sexaholic, take that drink, we're going to see what happens here with, the, with, the, with my body because my body is different than a person who is not a sexaholic. So let's turn over to the next page, XXVIII. And we're not going to read through the entire doctor's opinion. We're going to skip through paragraphs here just so we can capture the, the point of what the doctor was trying to pass on. We're going to start with paragraph one, XXVIII. We believe, and so suggested a few years ago, that the actions of lust on these chronic sexaholics is a manifestation of an allergy, that the phenomena of craving is limited to this class and never, I underline, never occurs in the average temperate drinker. These allergic types can never safely use lust in any form at all, once having formed a habit and found they cannot break it. Um, it goes on to say, once having lost their self-confidence, their reliance upon things human, their problems pile up on them and become astonishingly difficult to solve. So here they're telling us about that I have an allergy in my body, that any lust that I take into my body, there is a, something physical in my body that changes, and it's a phenomena of craving. A craving is created. Let's drop down to the last paragraph, men and women. It says, men and women drink essentially because they like the effects of pro produced by lust. And that means how it feels. I'm taking drinks of lust because I like how it feels, it, the comfort I get from it. The sensation is so elusive that while they admit it is injurious, they cannot after a time differentiate the true from the false. To them, their sexaholic life seems the only normal one. They are restless, irritable, and discontented unless they can again experience the sense of ease and comfort, which comes at once by taking a few drinks or a few visual drinks, drinks which they see others taking with impunity or freedom from harm. So they can see other people taking those same drinks, and they're not being harmed by them. I take the drink. I am harmed by them. After they have succumbed, uh, drinks they see others taking with impunity. After they have succumbed to the desire again or the temptation as so many do, the phenomena of craving develops. They pass through the well-known stages of a spree, emerging remorseful with a firm resolution not to drink again or to quit. This is repeated over and over. And unless this person can experience an entire psychic change or spiritual transformation, there is very little hope of his recovery. One thing I think it's important to point out here as you go back to the bottom page of the previous page, it says, they are restless, irritable, and discontented. Boy, for me, that is just feeling very uncomfortable in myself, and I'm needing to escape when I'm feeling like that. And I'd like to point out that they put this in before we take the drink. So the sexaholic is feeling restless, irritable, and discontent unless he can again experience the sense of ease and comfort, which comes at once by taking that lust drink. Um, I believe that I'm feeling restless, irritable, and discontented for one reason, because I'm not connected to my higher power. And when I'm not connected to my higher power, I feel restless, irritable, and discontent. When my body is hungry for food, I feel uncomfortable because I 
I'm hungry. When I'm thirsty, I feel uncomfortable. Well, I believe I need a spiritual connection in the same way with my higher power. And if I'm not spiritually connected to my higher power, I'm going to feel uncomfortable. I'm going to feel restless, irritable, and discontented. I'm going to feel like I need to escape. And how do I escape? If I'm not going to turn to my higher power to find what I'm really needing, then I'm going to take a lust drink, which is going to produce an ease and comfort immediately. He goes on to say at the very bottom of the next page, XXIX, we're going to skip down to the last paragraph. I do not hold with those who believe that sexaholism is entirely a problem of mental control. I have had many men who had, for example, worked a period of months on some problem or business deal, which was to be settled on a certain date, favorably to them. They took a drink a day or so prior to the date. Then the powerful phenomena of craving at once became paramount. Paramount means it's more important than anything else. Once they took that drink, the phenomena of craving kicked in, and at once they the, the phenomena of craving kicks in. It's more important than anything else to all other interests so that the important appointment was not met. These men were not drinking to escape. They were drinking to overcome a craving beyond their mental control. And I think it's important to see that, that when I'm feeling restless, irritable, discontent because I'm not connected spiritually, I take a drink. And once I take that drink, the phenomenon of craving kicks in and I'm no longer drinking to escape. I'm no longer drinking because I'm uncomfortable. Now I'm drinking because a craving, a phenomena of craving kicks in and I'm no longer drinking to overcome escape, but I'm drinking to overcome a craving which is beyond my mental control. I cannot control it once I take that first drink. And I think it's important, uh, I have a little quick story here. Uh, these men who... Um, took a drink or so prior to the date before the phenomenon of craving kicked in. They missed their appointment was not met. I have a, a good friend in the program, and with his permission, I'm able to share this story. He was a youth pastor in uh, his faith tradition and a very successful one, but he also had a very um, severe porno pornography addiction. And there was one kid about 16 in his group that really looked at him as a mentor. The kid's father was not involved in his life at all, and he was very, very close to this, um, to this uh, faith or to this pastor, um, youth pastor. And tragically, the young man's mother died. He was 16, and she died, and he went to this uh, youth pastor and said, can you be with me at the funeral? I really would love to have you there. And the youth pastor said, absolutely, I'll be there and walk through this time with you. Well, the night before the funeral, he took a drink. The phenomenon of craving kicked in, and he went on a pornography binge. Um, when he finally awoke from his pornography binge, he realized the funeral had been over for two hours. Not only did he not make it to support that young man, but he completely lost all time. And what I believe this disease does more than anything, it, it keeps me from being present with people. It keeps me from being present in relationship. So if I take a drink, the phenomenon of craving kicks in. I can't be present with those around me. And uh, 
I'm now no longer drinking to escape. I'm drinking to overcome a craving beyond my mental control. So let's go down to the second last paragraph, and this really sums up the doctor's opinion on I have a, a condition with my body. My body is sick. It's not just my mind, but my body is sick. And what causes my body to get sick is that I take a lust drink. So here's what they say. All these, second to last paragraph, all these and many others have one symptom in common, that they cannot start drinking without developing the phenomenon of craving. This phenomenon, as we have suggested, may be the manifestation may be the manifestation of an allergy which differentiates these people and sets them apart as a distinct entity. It has never been, by any treatment with which we are familiar, permanently eradicated. The only relief, this is it, the only relief we have to suggest is entire abstinence. And that's the doctor's opinion right there. My body is sick. I can't take any lust into my system because it courses through my veins. The phenomenon of craving kicks in, and I can't stop drinking. The only thing that I can hope for is entire abstinence. I can't fight taking a drink. If I try and fight it, I will drink. I can only turn to my higher power, which through steps two and three. But for today, for step one, the only thing that I have to understand about step one is that my body is sick. And unless I understand that my body is sick, I cannot recover because I can't see how I'm being affected by taking that drink. So let's go back to page 20. And we had read, doubtless you were curious to discover, we're within the first paragraph in the middle of it, doubtless you were curious to discover how and why in the face of expert opinion, to the contrary, we have recovered from a hopeless condition of mind and body. We just read about the body, the physical side. Let's take a look at the mental side. And we're going to look at three stories in the big book, and we're going to read through all three, which is quite lengthy. But I think it's so important that uh, we're going to read through these three stories on page 35. They're the stories of Jim, Jay, and Fred. And Jim started drinking at page at uh, 35 years old. So I like to remember that he started drinking at 35. His story starts on page 35. And I think these stories are so important because if I know I can't take a drink, if that's the reason, then why do I? Because I have a mental obsession, because there's a mental component to this disease that we will see what causes me to so carelessly take a drink, which starts that process of the phenomenon of craving. So we're going to start on the first paragraph. We're on page 35. What sort of thinking dominates a sexaholic who repeats time after time the desperate experiment of the first drink? Friends who have reasoned with him after a spree, which is brought him to the point of divorce or bankruptcy, are mystified when he walks directly into a saloon. Why does he, or in our case, when we take that next lust drink? Of what is he thinking? And that right here, I have a thinking disease that is the mental obsession, and that's what I want to find in these next three stories, is what is that mental obsession look like? Our first example is a friend we shall call Jim. This man has a charming wife and family. He inherited a lucrative automobile agency. He had a commendable war record. He is a good salesman. 
everybody likes him. He is an intelligent man, normal, normal so far as we can see. Except for a nervous disposition, he did no drinking until he was 35. In a few years, he became so violent when intoxicated that he had to be committed. On leaving the asylum, he came into contact with us, us being the AA guys out doing 12-step work. We told him what we knew of alcoholism and the answer we had found. He made a beginning. His family was reassembled, and he began to work as a salesman for the business he had lost through drinking. All went well for a time, and I think every time we see this in the story, especially in my sobriety, when all was going well for a time, I get comfortable. It's dangerous. That's the time to double up on me working my program and staying close to my higher power. So all went well for a time, but he failed to enlarge his spiritual life. And I think it's important that, um, that I have to continue to enlarge my spiritual life. It says, to his consternation, which means feelings of anxiety or dismay. Typically, it's something unexpected. To his consternation, he found himself drunk on a half a dozen times in rapid succession. On each of these occasions, we worked with him, reviewing carefully what had happened. He agreed he was a real alcoholic and in serious condition. And remember, we read, okay, we will read about the three different types. He knew he faced another trip to the asylum if he kept on. Moreover, he would lose his family for whom he had deep affection. Here's a man that knew if he took one more drink, he was going to lose his family from which he had deep affection. And he didn't want that. Yet he got drunk again. We asked him to tell us exactly how it happened. This is the story. I came to work on Tuesday morning. I remember I felt irritated that I had to be a salesman for a concern I once owned. A resentment right there. I had a few words with the boss, but nothing serious. Then I decided to drive into the country and see one of my prospects for a car. On the way, I felt hungry, so I stopped at a roadside place where they have a bar, which I think that's our disease and how insidious it is. I had no intention of drinking. I just thought I would get a sandwich. I also had the notion that I might find a customer for a car at this place, which was familiar, for I'd been going to it for years. I'd eaten there many times during the months I was sober, and I believe that's where he started to get comfortable again. I sat down at a table and ordered a sandwich and a glass of milk. Still, no thought of drinking. I ordered another sandwich and decided to have another glass of milk. I underlined this part. Suddenly, the thought crossed my mind. And I can tell you in my life, I have experienced this over and over where suddenly the thought crosses my mind. I can feel it. Suddenly, the thought crossed my mind that if I were to put an ounce of whiskey in my milk, it couldn't hurt me on a full stomach. And I have to ask, what about his family? He knows that if he takes another drink, he's going to lose his family, his business, his life. But suddenly, the thought crosses his mind that if he were to put an ounce of whiskey in my milk, it couldn't hurt me on a full stomach. I ordered a whiskey and poured it into the milk. I vaguely sensed I was not being any too smart, but felt reassured I was taking the whiskey on a full stomach. There's the mental obsession right there. He felt that he would be okay by taking this drink, which is insanity. The experiment went so well that I ordered another whiskey and poured it into more milk. That didn't seem to bother me, so I tried another. 
thus started one more journey to the asylum for Jim. Here was the threat of commitment, the loss of family and position, to say nothing of what intense mental and physical suffering which drinking always caused him. He had much knowledge about himself as an alcoholic, yet all reasons for not drinking were easily pushed aside in favor of the foolish idea that he could take whiskey if only he mixed it with milk. I would like to ask that you don't picture uh, Jim in this story, but you start putting yourself in these stories and how it relates to your um, acting out, your temptations, how you delude yourself into taking a, a drink, an ounce of whiskey in your milk. Whatever the precise definition of the word may be, we call this plain insanity. How can such a lack of proportion of the ability to think straight be called anything else? He may think this is an extreme case. To us, it is not far-fetched. For this kind of thinking has been characteristic of every single one of us. We have sometimes reflected more than Jim did upon the consequences but there is always the curious mental phenomena that parallel with our sound reasoning, their inevitably ransom, insanely trivial, trivial excuse for taking the first drink. Our sound reasoning failed to hold us in check. This insane idea won out. Next day, we would ask ourselves in all earnestness and sincerity, how could it have happened? And I believe we already know how my body's going to respond, but why at times do I so, you know, flippantly just take a drink um, because I think I get comfortable. I think I forget how deadly my disease is. In some circumstances, we have gone out deliberately to get drunk, feeling ourselves justified by nervousness, anger, worry, depression, jealousy, or the like. But even in this type of beginning, we are obliged to admit that our justification for a spree was insanely insufficient in the light of what always happened. We now see that we begin to drink deliberately instead of casually. There was little or serious or effective thought during the period of premeditation of what the terrific consequences might be. All right, now we're on the last paragraph of page 37, and I write next to the word B, I write J, because this is where J's story starts. I read J's story, I can't tell you how many times, and thought, what a ridiculous story to have in this book. Until one day I was reading it in a park, and I realized, that's me. I'm Jay. So see if you can find yourself as Jay. Our behavior is absurd and incomprehensible with respect to the first drink. Is that of an individual with a passion, say, for jaywalking? He gets a thrill out of skipping in front of fast-moving vehicles. He enjoys himself for a few years in spite of a friendly warnings. Every time I use my disease, every time I take a lust drink and start that process... I'm harming myself. Regardless of what my mental obsession tells me, I'm hurting myself just like Jay is in this story. We'll continue. Up to this point, you would label him as a foolish chap having queer ideas of fun. Luck then deserts him as he's slightly injured several times in succession. You would expect him, if he were normal, to cut it out. Presently, he is hit again, and this time has a fractured skull. Within a week after leaving the hospital, a fast-moving trolley car breaks his arm. He tells you he has decided to stop jaywalking for good. But in a few weeks, he breaks both legs. Just like me, I keep taking more drinks. On through the years, his, this conduct continues, accompanied by his continual promises to be careful or to keep off the streets altogether. Finally, he can no longer work. 
His wife gets a divorce, and he's held up to ridicule. He tries every known means to get the jaywalking idea out of his mind. He shuts himself up in an asylum, hoping to mend his way. But the day he comes out, he races in front of a fire engine, which breaks his back. Such a man would be crazy, wouldn't he? You may think our illustration is too ridiculous, but is it? We who have been through the ringer have to admit if we substituted alcoholism or sexaholism for jaywalking, the illustration would fit us exactly. However intelligent we may have been in other respects, where lust has been involved, we have been strangely insane. It's It's strong language, but isn't it true? Some of you are thinking, yes, what you tell us is true, but it doesn't fully apply. We admit we have some of these symptoms, but we have not gone to the extremes you fellows did, nor are we likely to, for we understand ourselves so well that after you have told us such things cannot happen again. We have not lost everything in life through drinking, and we certainly do not intend to. Thanks for the information. And how many newcomers have we seen come and go with this type of mentality? That may be true of certain non-sexaholic people who, though drinking foolishly and heavily at the present time, are able to stop or moderate because their brains and bodies have not been damaged as ours were. But the actual or potential sexaholic, with hardly an exception, will be absolutely unable to stop drinking on the basis of self-knowledge. This is a point we wish to emphasize and reemphasize to smash home upon the alcoholic readers as it has been revealed to us out of bitter experience. Let us take another illustration. So this will be the last story of the mental, uh, mental obsession. And this is Fred. This is Fred's story. Fred is a partner in a well-known accounting firm. His income is good. He has a fine home, is happily married, and the father of promising children of college age. He has so attractive a personality that he makes friends with everyone. If ever there was a successful businessman, it is Fred. To all appearance, he is stable, well-balanced individual, yet he is an alcoholic. We first saw Fred about a year ago in a hospital where he had gone to recover from a bad case of jitters. It was his first experience of this kind, and he was much ashamed of it. Far from admitting he was an alcoholic, he told himself he came to the hospital to rest his nerves. The doctor intimated or stated strongly that he might be worse than he realized. For a few days, he was depressed about his conditions. He made up his mind to quit drinking altogether. There again, he's using his willpower. It never occurred to him that perhaps he could not do so. In spite of his character and standing, Fred would not believe himself a sex and alcoholic much less accept a spiritual remedy for his problems. We told him what we knew about alcoholism. He was interested and conceded that he had some of the symptoms, but he was a long way from admitting that he could do nothing about it himself. He was positive that this humiliating experience, plus the knowledge he had acquired, would keep him sober the rest of his life. Self-knowledge would fix it. So here he believed his inner working, that his knowledge he obtained, he's not going to drink anymore. We heard no more of Fred for a while. One day we were told that he was back in the hospital. This time he was quite shaky. He soon indicated he was anxious to see us. The story he told is most instructive, for here was a chap absolutely convinced he had to stop drinking. 
who had no excuse for drinking, who exhibited splendid judgment and determination in all his other concerns, yet was flat on his back nevertheless. Let him tell you about it. I was much impressed with what you fellows said about alcoholism, and I frankly did not believe it would be possible for me to drink again. This man knew that he would not drink again. He had accepted in his mind that he would never take another drink. Alcohol would never cross his lips like, I will never take another bus drink. He believed it. Let's move on. I rather appreciated your ideas about the subtle insanity which precedes the first drink, which I call the great liar. But I was confident it could not happen to me after what I had learned. I reasoned I was not so far advanced as most of you fellows, and that I had been usually successful in licking my other personal problems, and that I would therefore be successful, successful where you men failed. I felt I had every right to be self-confident that it would only be a matter of exercising my willpower and keeping on guard. In this frame of mind, I went about my business, and for a time, all was well. And he started to get comfortable again right here, I believe. I had no trouble refusing drinks and began to wonder if I had not been making too hard a work of a simple matter. One day, I went to Washington to, to present some accounting evidence to a government bureau. I had been out of town before during this particular dry spell, so there was nothing new about it. Physically, I felt fine. Neither did I have any pressing problems or worries. My business came off well. I was pleased <clears throat> and knew my partners would be too. It was the end of a perfect day, not a cloud on the horizon. I went to my hotel and leisurely dressed for dinner. As I crossed the threshold of the dining room, the thought came to mind. And this thought, I believe, and here's the controlling force right there. The thought came to mind. That's the mental obsession. That's the liar that's whispering. So the thought came to mind that it would be nice to have a couple of cocktails with dinner. That was all, nothing more. Now, if we look in the page before, he said, I was much impressed about what you fellows had said about alcoholism, and I frankly did not believe it would be possible for me to drink again. And here he is, after his business went off well, the thought came to mind, it would be nice to have a couple of cocktails with dinner. That was all, nothing more. I ordered a cocktail and and my meal. Then I ordered another cocktail, which I believe the second one was the phenomenon of cravings kicking in now. After dinner, I decided to take a walk. When I returned to the hotel, it struck me, mental obsession again. A highball would be fine before going to bed, so I stepped into the bar and had one. I remember having several more that night and plenty the next morning, and I believe that's part of the craving beyond his mental control. Now he had taken the first drink, he can't stop. I have a shadowy recollection of being in an airplane bound for New York and of finding a friendly taxicab driver at the landing field instead of my wife. The driver escorted me about for several days. I know little of where I went or what I said and did. Then came the hospital with unbearable mental and physical suffering. That unbearable mental and physical suffering is spoke about on page 151 in our big book. Take a second holding this page. Go to 151. And if you look at the second paragraph, or third, the less people tolerated this, go down about three sentences to where it says, it thickened, ever becoming blacker. And right here it says, because I want you to read about what the four horsemen are, what he's talking about when he says, 
um, unbearable mental and physical. Some of us sought out sordid places, hoping to find understanding, companionship, and approval. Momentarily we did. Then would come oblivion and the awful awakening to face the hideous four horsemen, terror, bewilderment, frustration, and despair. And I know these things I have experienced. And unhappy drinkers who read this page will understand. So let's flip back and continue on where we left off. We're on the last paragraph of page 41. As soon as I regained my ability to think, I went carefully over that evening in Washington. Not only had I been off guard, I had made no fight whatever against the first drink. This time, I had not thought of the consequences at all. And I I can tell you how many times I have taken my first drink without thinking about the consequences, which led me to incomprehensible demoralization. I'd like to take a minute and holding this page, drop back to page 24. Because I want to look at where it talks in the big book about uh, I had not thought of the consequences at all, because it speaks it very well. On the page 24 at the very top, what I call paragraph zero, it says, at a certain point in the drinking of every sexaholic, he passes into a state where the most powerful desire to stop drinking is of absolutely no avail. This tragic situation has already arrived in practically every case before it is suspected. The fact is that most sexaholics, for reasons yet obscure, which means uh, to keep from being seen and to conceal, have lost the power of choice and drink. Our so-called willpower becomes practically non-existent. And right here where it talks about the consequences, we are unable at certain times to bring into our consciousness with sufficient force the memory of the suffering and humiliation of even a week or a month ago. And why is that? Because we are without defense against the first strength. That is the mental obsession, that I'm without defense. I can't stop from taking that first drink. So turning back to page 41, we'll finish up the, the stories here. And he said, this time I had not thought of the consequences at all. I had commenced to drink as carelessly as though the cocktails were ginger ale. I now remembered what my alcoholic friends had told me, how they prophesied that if I had an alcoholic mind, the time and place would come. I would drink again. They had said that though I did raise a defense, it would one day give way before some trivial reason for having a drink. Well, just that did happen and more. For what I had learned of alcoholism did not occur to me at all. I knew from that moment that I had an alcoholic mind. I saw that willpower and self-knowledge would not help in those strange mental blank spots. I had never been able to understand people who said that a problem had them hopelessly defeated. I knew then it was a crushing blow. I believe he experienced it step one. He knew at that moment that he was completely powerless over this addiction, that all the self-knowledge and uh, all the willpower is not going to help anymore. And I believe that's when I can start to get healthy, is when I don't have some lurking notion that I can still use a little bit. But when I realized that I knew then it was a question book, he knew that he was defeated. And now I think he can get recovery. Two of the members of Alcoholics Anonymous came to see me. They grinned, which I didn't like so much, and then asked me 
If I thought myself an alcoholic, and if I were really licked this time, I had to concede both propositions. And I believe if I don't concede that I am a sexaholic, I cannot start the process of getting sober and, and toward recovery. They piled me heaps of evidence to the effect that an alcoholic mentality, such as I exhibited in Washington, was a hopeless condition. We're going to stop there, and we're going to turn back to page 20. Go back to page 20. All right. So we go back into that first paragraph. Doubtless you are curious to discover how and why in the face of expert opinion to the contrary, we have recovered from a hopeless condition of mind and body. Now we have seen where our body is not the same. The mental obsession is, is I am without defense against the first drink. I will take the first drink. I can't stop it. All the self-knowledge and all the willpower, I'm going to take the first drink. And once I do, we know the consequences that come from that. If you are a sexaholic who wants to get over it, you may already be asking, what do I have to do? And that's what I was asking coming in this program. What do I have to do? I'm willing to do anything to be free. It is the purpose of this book to answer such questions specifically, precisely. That's what this book is about. This is an instruction manual. If I do what the founders did, I will, have what the founder, I will get what the founders got. Well, we shall tell you what we have done before going into detailed discussion. It may be well to summarize some points as we see them. And I'd like to take a moment and just look at the three types of alcoholic or three types of sexaholic to find out which type I am. Because truly, this book is geared toward the real sexaholic or the real alcoholic. Go down to the last paragraph or the second to the last paragraph. Let's look at a type one Drinker. Moderate drinkers have little trouble in giving up liquor or lust entirely. If they have a good reason for it, they can take it or leave it alone. That's not me. Then we have a certain type of hard drinker, type 2. He may have the habit badly enough to gradually impair him physically and mentally. It may cause him to die a few years before his time. If a sufficiently strong reason like ill health, falling in love, change of environment, or the warning of a doctor becomes operative, this man can also stop or moderate, which means control, although he may find it difficult or troublesome and may even need medical attention. But what about the real sexaholic, the type 3? He may start off as a moderate drinker or a moderate luster. He may or may not become a continuous hard drinker, but at some stage of his drinking career, he begins to lose all control of his liquor consumption or his lust consumption once he starts to drink, here is a fellow that has been puzzling you, especially in his lack of control. This program, is for me, because a sexaholic means I can't stop. That's what a sexaholic for me is, is I cannot stop. And this program is not about learning for me to learn how to stop or to quit. This program is for me to learn how not to start again, how not to take that first drink. And that's where the continuing steps start to reveal that process. So let's turn back to page 58. Give me a second to get back there. All right. 
For those of us, it says, rarely have we seen a person fail who has thoroughly followed our path. Now we know what our path is. It's our 12 steps. Those who do not recover are people who cannot or will not completely give themselves to this simple program. Usually men and women who are constitutionally incapable of being honest with themselves. There are such unfortunates. They are not at fault. They seem to have been born that way. They are naturally incapable of grasping and developing a manner of living, which is a way of life, which demands rigorous honesty. Their chances are less than average. There are those, too, who suffer from grave emotional and mental disorders, but many of them do recover if they have the capacity to be honest. When I first got in the program, I I had a real strong faith tradition and I always professed to love my higher power. And when I first got in and I would call out to my higher power after my sponsor was teaching me about surrender, I could see where the relief started to come. And every time I, I called out to him, the relief would come. And, but then I started watching myself not call out to him and taking the drinks. And I had to go to my higher power and be honest and say, I'm choosing my lust over you. So I love my lust more than I love you. And I believe at that moment my higher power was celebrating because I told the truth. That was the truth. And I could see my condition at that point and knew that I needed him to do for me what I couldn't do for myself. And that's even asking him to choose him over my lust, to love him more. So we're going to continue on. Our stories disclose in a general way what we used to be like, what happened, and what we are like now. If you have decided you want what we have and are willing to go to any length to get it, then you are ready to take certain steps. So when it says go to any length, there's a, a connotation for me of desperation. And the acronym God, G-O-D, is gift of desperation. And I believe when I lose my gift of desperation, I start to go back to my old ways. I know how deadly my disease is, and I pray that I have the gift of desperation every morning I wake up to work this program and to stay close to my higher power. At some of these, we balked. We thought we could, we thought we could find an easier and softer way, and I have found um, the only easier and softer way is working the 12 steps. I can't tell you how many times I see uh, myself and individuals trying to find other ways But really, just working the 12 steps and do what my sponsor tells me, that is the easier, softer way for me. But we could not, with all the earnestness at our command, we beg of you to be fearless and thorough from the very start. Some of us have tried to hold on to our old ideas, which for me is that lust works for me. That's my old idea. And the result was nil until we let go absolutely. And that's what I have to do with this program is I have to quit fighting lust I have to let go absolutely. So let's uh, turn to page 30. We're coming to a close here shortly. Page 30. All right. It says on page 30, most of us have been unwilling to admit that we were real sexaholics, and I think that is just so primary in this program that I fully believe that I'm a sexaholic. There's still some doubt in my mind that I may not be, or in the future I may not be. I don't believe I can recover. I don't believe I can live a recovered life. 
without that belief that I am a sexaholic, I have a disease, and I will the rest of my life. No person likes to think he is bodily and mentally different from his fellows. Therefore, it is not surprising that our drinking careers have been characterized by countless vain attempts to prove that we could drink like other people. The idea that somehow, someday, he will control and enjoy his drinking is the great obsession of every abnormal drinker. See those two words together, control and enjoy? They will never be able to go together. I believe if I'm not trying to control my disease and I just go out fully to enjoy it, I think I can enjoy my disease. But what brought me to this program is because I couldn't see what my disease was. I could only see what my disease was doing for me. I couldn't see what my disease was doing to me. So until my unmanageability got so bad and the pain from my disease got so bad, um, that's when I started trying to control it. And those two never go together. So let's continue on. The persistence of this illusion is astonishing, and many pursue it into the gates of insanity or death. Um, it goes on, we learned that we had to fully concede. I underlined that sentence, and I put quotation marks around it, because I think those two words are so important. I can't partially concede. If there's still some doubt, I cannot get sober and recover. I don't believe I, I can't. I'm not saying it's not possible, but I couldn't. So we, had, we learned that we had to fully concede to our innermost selves that we were sexaholics, which means I can't stop. This is the first step in recovery. The delusion that we are like other people or presently may be has to be smashed. And that word smashed means it obliterated to not come back, to not reform a thought that, you know, I'm going to be someday a normal person. I'm not going to have this disease one day. But the truth is, is I have to fully concede to my innermost self that I'm a sexaholic, that I can't stop, that I'm not like other people, and that I never will be. We sexaholics are men and women who have lost the ability to control our drinking. We know that no real sexaholic ever recovers control. I think it's important that sense. We know that no real sexaholic ever, I, I put asterisks around that, or um, quotation marks around that, ever recovers control. Let's turn to page 22. Hold your page, though, because it's just a short section that I think really dials in to that whole section that I'll never regain control. Very last paragraph of page 22, we start with we know. We know that while the sexaholic keeps away from drink, as he may do for months or years, he reacts much like other men. I don't take that first drink. I'm as normal as the next person. We are equally positive that once he takes any, in, quote, in the quotes, any, lust into his system, something happens, both in the bodily and mentally sense, mental sense, which makes it virtually impossible for him to stop. The experience of any sexaholic will abundantly confirm this. These observations would be academic and pointless if our friend never took the first drink, because I'd be normal. I wouldn't have this disease. Thereby setting the terrible cycle in motion. Therefore, the main problem of the sexaholic centers in his mind rather than in his body. 
my body is sickened, knowing that, having knowledge of that, doesn't help me because I can't stop from taking the first drink. So let's go back now, back to page 30 and finish this out. So we know that no real sexaholic ever recovers control. I will never be able to control my disease. I will never be able to take a drink of lust and control that. That can't happen. It will not happen. Since all of us felt at times that we were regaining control, but such intervals, usually brief, were inevitably followed by still less control, which led in time to pitiful and incomprehensible demoralization. We are convinced, underlined the quotations, to a man that sexaholics of our type, which is a real sexaholic, are in the grip of a progressive illness. Over any considerable period, we get worse, never better. Even though I haven't been using for three years, my disease is still getting worse. If I went back, I'm not going back to where I left off. I know that. I've seen that in others. It's, and it's really, really scary because the pain was so bad that it was not working for me. That the pain of going through all this is not as bad as what it was like. I can't imagine what it would be like if I go back. So we are like men who have lost their legs. They will never grow new ones. I'm handicapped. Like A man who is, that doesn't have legs will never walk again. A blind man will never see again. I will never, I have to live out the rest of my life with this disease, and I have to accept that. The good news is that I have a disease that requires a spiritual solution, which we will start talking about in steps two and three. But I have to believe that. If I don't believe it, then I have to go out and experiment and do more research and find a new bottom. I have to believe that. And just like the blind man learns to get along with his disability, I learn when I get hit with the insanity to surrender immediately, call somebody in the program, work my program. But I get to live free if I'm willing to do that and take my daily medicine of my program every day. Neither does there appear to be any kind of treatment which will make sexaholics of our kind like other men. We have tried every imaginable remedy. In some instances, there has been brief recovery followed always by still worse relapse. Physicians who are familiar with alcoholism agree there is no such thing as making a normal drinker or a normal luster out of a sexaholic. So with that, I always ask my sponsees, at this point, do you fully concede to your innermost self that you are a sexaholic? And if you do, this is the first step in your recovery. The delusion that you are like other people or presently may be, like because you're starting to get comfortable again, has to be smashed. So I ask them, do you believe that you're in a progressive illness that will never go away? Are you going to have this disease the rest of your life? And if they can answer yes, then I believe they're well on their way to go through their steps to start finding recovery. If they're still not sure, I still keep taking them through the steps, but there's still a new bottom to find, some more experiment, experimenting or researching to do. So with that, that does conclude our um, step one walkthrough of the big book. 
Um, I also use the step into action, which I find uh, very, very helpful as well. So let me get my... Oh, no, my... I cannot shut off the recorder until I log off here, so my computer dropped off. I would like to thank you for listening to this episode of The Daily Reprieve, the best source for experience, strength, and hope for SA members. Please subscribe to this podcast to be alerted of new episodes. Please show your support by donating to The Daily Reprieve by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and choosing either monthly donations or a one-time donation by clicking Donate Now. Thank you for listening, and stay tuned for the next episode of The Daily Reprieve.